Hey everybody, Tom Scott here with RP Eddie as usual, and today we welcome Tristan Harris. Tristan, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here with you. And I am gonna run RP's introduction. There it is. Uh, thank you guys, and, and Tristan, thank you for being here. RP, I want you to give us a quick intro and then I want to run. This is a thrill for me. I talk about this stuff all the time, Tristan. I drive people crazy on this. RP knows this. So it's a thrill for me to have you here. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Tristan, thank you so much for being here. It's a huge thrill for me as well. Um, I've always enjoyed the, the time I've got to spend with you. You've, you've taught me a lot. And then your film completely blew my mind. Um, not exaggerating to say... I think it might be the best movie I've ever seen. And I say that at risk of, of overshadowing my previous favorite movie, which was the Blues Brothers. I think your movie is profound and it's easily the most important movie I've ever seen. Um, uh, and I, I think it's also extraordinarily well done. And even though you and I have spent some real time together and you've taught me a lot, I learned a lot from the movie. Some things where I sat in the middle of the movie taking notes and I just cursed out loud. Uh, so it was extraordinary. And obviously anyone who hasn't seen it needs to go see The Social Dilemma. I think it's it's really an important film. Um, probably the the Cassandra call of this generation. So it's an honor to have you here. I really can't thank you enough. I know how busy you are. So thanks for doing that. That's awesome. Thank you so much, RP. I'm really glad we can do this conversation and, uh, and go deeper. Right. And, and so Tristan, what I would thought I would do just to sort of bring people in, I'm gonna run the trailer, okay? Bring everyone in and we'll, and we'll get going. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident, that's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up. And we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Facebook discovered that they were able to affect real world behavior and emotions without ever triggering the user's awareness. They are completely clueless. Fake news spreads six times faster than true news. We're being bombarded with rumors. If everyone's entitled to their own facts, there's really no need for people to come together. In fact, there's really no need for people to interact. We have less control over who we are and what we really believe. If you want to control the population of your country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. We built these things and we have a responsibility to change it. The intention could be, how do we make the world better? 
If technology creates mass chaos, loneliness, more polarization, more election hacking, more inability to focus on the real issues, we're toast. This is checkmate on humanity. Intense. It's pretty intense. <laughs> um, and I feel like so 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 Trista, I don't, I'm so excited for this conversation. We can go all sorts of directions. There's a lot to cover here. Um, <clears throat> the movie begins off with this kind of list of ailments we know that social media brings into our lives: social isolation, fake news, election interference, screen addiction, things that we're all relatively familiar with, or many of us are. But that's really not the message of this movie. To me, you then, you know, you build up to this big reveal. And as I said, it's something, even though you and I have spent time together, you spoke at our conference, that big reveal to me was still illuminating. Like, you want to give us a bite at what that is? Um, towards the end, you're talking about in terms yeah. of the, the pullback. Can we, can, we, can we be a spoiler? Right uh, if, you, if, you, if you want to be, if you want to spoil the audience, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there's several deep, there's, there's so much packed into this film in terms of what's really going on with technology. I mean, just, just to first meet the point you just said, at the opening of the film, we talk about, you know, so what's the problem in technology? You know, if you ask people, there's a sort of cacophony of grievances and scandals. You have tech addiction, fake news, social isolation, um, privacy, Cambridge Analytica, election interference. And these feel like disparate harms. Like they're all coming from different directions. Um, but the question is, is there actually a common framework to view all these harms through. Um, and that I think actually speaks to RP when you and I first first met at the at the dialogue conference, um, where you know we were talking about the singularity. When would technology actually become smarter than humans? When does it take our jobs? When does it surpass our IQ? That's the you know takeoff, you know, we can read uh, what is what is his book, uh, Nick uh, Bostrom's Bostrom. book. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's what everyone talks about when they worry about future existential threats of technology taking over from humanity is by overwhelming our strengths and our IQ and our intelligence. But on that graph of sort of when that would happen, we missed, we missed this much earlier point when technology actually undermines human weaknesses. Um, and this is really the critical thing where take tech addiction. What is tech addiction about? It's well, technology has undermined our sense of agency, our dopamine reward systems, our variable schedule rewards, our reliance on stopping cues, which are the natural points in our natural environment where our brain wakes up and says, what do I really want to do? It's the reason why in Sesame Street, Elmo says to kids, hey, stand up and do a little dance. So that way you actually have a stopping cue and the kids can decide do they want to continue or not. Technology is undermining you know, all those elements. When it comes to polarization or teen mental health, um, technology is manipulating our social approval. It's never been easier to see infinite evidence of people who approve or disapprove of you when you're on Twitter. It's easy for me to see it right now. I can go on Social Dilemma on Twitter and I can find a bunch of people who hate me and I can also find 99.9% .9 of people who think the film is incredibly important. But where does my mind go? It goes to the negative because I'm evolved to go to the negative. Um, so in each one of these cases of what's gone wrong with technology, election interference, same thing, disinformation, each of these phenomena have to do with technology manipulating or overriding certain human vulnerabilities or weaknesses. And this insight for me comes from my background as a magician, because in magic, if you're trying to quote unquote outsmart your spectator, your audience, you're not actually, you know, it's not like if you work with suddenly a nuclear scientist or PhDs in chemistry, that they're too smart for magic, because that's not what magic is about. 
magic doesn't work on intelligence. It works on knowing something about someone's psychological vulnerabilities or weaknesses or how they meet the reason of cause and effect or attention. And the fact that you know something about their weakness that they don't know about themselves is what makes the illusion work. And that's the very thing that's happened with technology. Now, so that's, that's almost like a, you know, when we talk about this in a, in a zooming out sense, before there is the singularity, there's sort of this inversion point where technology kind of manipulates our weaknesses. So that's the early point. The second point, I think, towards the end of the film is really that, um, you know, we have created asymmetrically powerful technology that traps each of us in our own pre-programmed Truman Show or reality, a kind of matrix-like, you know, box or pod in which each of us have been fed a virtual reality in our own mind, because we now live by these technologies. They have make up the way that we construct our reality, especially in coronavirus. Each of us are sitting here at home. We don't know what's really going on in the world. We look through the, you know, the, the lens of our binoculars, which is social media, to see, you know, is Portland on fire and completely, you know, a civil war-like city right now? Or is it a really peaceful day and there's actually no fires and um, it's only happening in two, you know, two blocks in, in the major town square? Um, our entire reality is constructed by these platforms. And when you see just how warped these things are in, in, in how social media has warped our meaning-making and sense-making uh, by putting us into each of those containers, that virtual reality becomes a real reality because we start voting based on that virtual reality. We start sending our kids to school or not. We start wearing masks or not based on that virtual reality that this thing steers for, for what we believe and think. Um, and I think that what I hope we, we get to in the conversation is just why this is so existential. Um, because as a mutual friend of ours, Daniel Schmachtenberger would say, um, if we don't have a shared basis of truth or a shared basis to, of conversation, you can't just you know, pretend that the other half of people who disagree with you just doesn't exist. You have, if you don't have conversation, you have violence. And I think that technology has, uh, I mean, the technology, the social media platforms, by for it being profitable, for it to give each of us our own reality as opposed to a shared conversation or a shared basis, um, that has made it impossible to have conversation and then that leads to violence if we don't, uh, if we don't fix it. Just to make that concrete, you know, if Black Lives Matter take a, you know, what to me doesn't seem that controversial, but if you're living in one side of the news feeds for Black Lives Matter, what you see with regard to that topic is video after video after video of uh, police brutality against African-Americans in this country. And it's just never been clear kind of what needs to change. But if you're on different newsfeed, all you see is video after video after video of violent protesters, uh, you know, spilling over people's drinks and tearing down statues of people who aren't even slaveholders um, from, from, uh, from, 300, from 300 years ago. So if you then say, well, I agree with Black Lives Matter or I disagree with Black Lives Matter, you're disagreeing on two different virtual realities that you're both having living in your own minds. And that is, is what I think is so pernicious is we think we're having the same conversation, but we're actually yelling at each other from two completely separate realities. And uh, I hope that's where we'll get into all these topics. So a lot, a lot there. Let me, let me go back to your, the first thing you began with there, which is the, literally the moment watching the social dilemma when I cursed out loud, which was uh, exactly as you're describing. It's when you stood in front of the graph it was called the, I think you called the kind of the checkmate on humanity moment. Yeah. So just to make this more clear for some of the people watching, you and I have had conversations about artificial intelligence, super intelligence, humans losing the control function, Terminator 2, 2000, this whole thing. 
And, and um, Hollywood has movie after movie about how the super intelligent being destroys humanity. And when you and I met, that was something I was extremely concerned about. And in fact, we wrote a chapter about it in our book as a potential Cassandra. What I saw in this movie that made me curse out loud was, I got it all wrong. We all got it all wrong. You got it right. You showed us that that checkmate on humanity isn't the smartest brain, uh, the smartest humans in the world being overwhelmed by the smartest computer in the world. It's a relatively you know, simple AI algorithm working on our greatest weaknesses and thereby overwhelming our strengths with great ease. I thought that was brilliant um, and, and, and unbelievably important point, right? And of course, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. My dad taught me this every time we sit around Thanksgiving dinner. This was his toast. I don't know why, but you know, that's the point. So we lost in that instance. And I think that's amazing. Why? Um, and, and you also talk a bit about, you know, our limbic system is very much driven towards social connection. That's what our brain is optimized for. What is social media doing uh, in, in regards to the neuroscience of, of, of what my brain for 140,000 years has evolved to do? Yeah. So for this, I, we always start by referencing E.O. Wilson, um, the famous father of sociology from Harvard, um, so sociobiology, excuse me, sociobiology. Uh, and he said so eloquently, um, the fundamental problem of humanity is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and accelerating godlike technology. And you can, that just summarizes so much right there, which is to say, I don't care how smart I am if I'm a PhD or I'm in Mensa or I've, you know, I'm off the charts on IQ tests. Uh, I still care about my social approval because I'm evolved for hundreds of thousands of years for it to be an existential threat if a bunch of people for some reason think, say bad things about me. The and paleolithic that's my emotions. That's the paleolithic emotions, which you, we can shorthand with our reptilian brain or our lizard brain. Um, so we've got lizard brains um, or, you know, and then we've got medieval institutions and ideas from 300 years ago guiding um, our moral and ethical philosophy and our, our legal systems. So for example, the idea of a marketplace of ideas, the solution to bad speech is more speech. Um, these are the, you know, we can, we can thank uh, uh, Locke and Mill for some of these great insights. The problem is that it's insufficient for a world in which we have finite attention. So in a world where we privilege free speech, and we, we privilege infinite information, all that information has to, has to somehow fit though in this very scarce amount of human attention. And the founding fathers didn't think to themselves, gosh, we're gonna have exponential tech driving personalized Truman shows with uh, you know, A to Z tested, um, AB tested um, you know, computerized speech that people are gonna be inventing a DP, GPT-3 uh, you know, text that's gonna sound perfectly indistinguishable from human speech. And we're gonna solve that with just more speech. Um, this is not going to be uh, sufficient. So that's our medieval institutions. Then we have accelerating godlike technology, which I think is obvious to everybody probably watching this call, which is that every year, the capacities of AI and technology are getting stronger. Uh, the best example of this recently is GPT-3 and deep fakes where our capacity to fake out, again, not human strengths, but human weaknesses, the shortcuts and heuristics that our mind uses to discern what is true and real. You know, usually we use the shortcuts as, well, that guy went to Stanford, so that must be authoritative or real. Or that guy looks like they have an authentic Twitter profile because he's got 2,400 followers and that seems like a lot of followers for someone who's fake. Um, but those are easily fakeable signals that um, especially with GPT-3, we can now create whole essays of text about the philosophy of artificial intelligence that are generated by machines 
including you could do that in my voice. Um, we, maybe we'll get to GPT-3 later, but you can actually simulate an entire essay that you could say, write an essay on the philosophy of artificial intelligence or the social dilemma, the film, in the voice of Tristan Harris, and it would actually generate an essay that might sound uh, reasonably indistinguishable. So now, zoom, zooming back out, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike tech. What this really poses is we have three different clock rates. So we have lizard brains we can't change. Um, I'm not going to change my lizard brain. Um, we have medieval institutions that might pass laws every four years, five years. It took, I think, six years to get GDPR in, the, in Europe out the door in terms of privacy protection. Then we have accelerating godlike technology that is creating issues faster than our lizard brains and our, paleo and our um, medieval institutions are catching up with it. And when I say medieval institutions, I don't want to disparage the power and need for government intervention here. Um, I think we have to be really thoughtful about how we deploy it. But just to state the problem statement is that what happens when your accelerator of your car is moving at an order of magnitude faster than the control mechanisms of your steering wheel, which is your medieval institutions, you're not going to last very long before you're off a cliff or crash. So I think what we have to do is embrace our paleolithic emotions, upgrade our medieval institutions, and have the wisdom to guide our accelerating godlike technology. As Barbara Marx Hubbard uh, says, and our friend Daniel Schmackenberger references often, um, you can't have the power of gods without the wisdom, love, and prudence of gods. And we, when you're essentially broadcasting, yeah, when you're essentially broadcasting exponential speech and creating exponential consequences, but you don't have the wisdom to know what those consequences are, um, that is fundamentally a problem. In other words, we're too, we're, too we're too powerful to be naive. We can no longer afford to be um, uh, you know, not as wise as, as gods. You know, I, let me real world this for a second, RP, um, which is to say, I go back, I think it's called Warsaw, Arkansas. RP, you and I spoke, and I might have the town wrong. Joe, check that out. But I, I did 12,000 miles on the road this summer, Tristan, and one was a trip, a friend of mine and I, Joe, who's sitting over here, we did the first trip. The second trip, we went with 15 people, and we did conversations on race to the northern tip of the Mississippi, all the way down the Mississippi and back. You just described what I saw. We love each other way more than the internet tells us we do. Way more. Yeah. And I know I'm right about that. Why? Because I've been there. I've spent the time. I've spent the time. That's not, that's not exactly my point. But part of this is, and, and you know, information overload is not information at all. Right? It's a lack of information. And there was a moment, and the reason I said Warsaw RP, and you'll remember this, is you asked me a question. Of some, you'd run into somebody at a dinner party, and RP asked me a question. It's like, well, what do they see out there on the road? You know, one was xenophobia. I said, is there a lot of, someone said, is there a lot of xenophobia out there? And I said, it hasn't come up once. Not one time. No one said that term. And I never heard anything about immigration on, on the entire trip. And then the other one, and I don't remember what that was, RP, but I remember we were in like this distorted reality where I was in the cities day after day after day, and, and you had, someone had asked you a question the night before at a party, and it was describing what you were saying about Portland, Tristan, and I thought, my God, we, we are truly in a dream state. Like, we actually exist at a moment where dystopia isn't out there somewhere. It's right here. Um, anyway, were you going to say something? Sorry, did I step on you? No, no, not no. at all. I mean, I, I um, one metaphor maybe just to add on what you're saying is, um, you know, the system is very much like climate change. We've actually called it, in fact, Frank Luntz, um, who coined the phrase climate change, uh, has called this a climate change of culture, which is that, um, you know, much like 
because it's based on an extractive economy that uh, much like, you know, our extractive oil economy, um, you know, creates a sort of race to the bottom and, uh, and depletes and, and sort of changes our outer environment through the collective effects of climate change. This is an extractive economy based on human attention that slowly, gradually changes the outer and the, the cultural environment and also the inner environment, as you said. So like kind of the virtual, we always have a virtual reality in our own minds, which is to say the map is not the territory and we're each running maps in our brains for what is reality. You know, for what's the word, what's the thing that's, what's the representation that's grounding each phrase that we use, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Portland or, uh, you know, whatever else. And that, those representations have been slowly, gradually shifting, including our basic biases, you know, and conspiracy thinking and all these other things have been aggregating layers and layers and layers of a more warped internal environment. But it's happening, it's been happening slowly over the course of the last 10 years. And I think one thing I hope we get into is for people to really think, okay, if we've been dosing people with, and I'm not trying to vilify all conspiracy theories because some are real, but we've been dosing people with a mass recommendation of, um, you know, uh, uh, paranoid, you know, neuroticism kind of thinking, because YouTube, as an example, recommended Alex Jones Infowars conspiracy theories 15 billion times, which is more than the combined traffic of the New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, Fox News combined. So I think when you actually have to rewind the clock here and say our, our virtual reality minds are running malware that has been slowly accruing over the last 10 years. So this isn't just about let's fix the tech and then suddenly our brains wake up and we're fine. It's about actually stepping back and saying, can I rewind the ways that all of our minds have been narrowed and our biases are now off in some fundamental way? And I think that's hopefully the, the point of the film is that it creates a new shared reality about the breakdown of our shared reality. So now we actually have a shared place to, to discuss the breakdown of that, of that shared uh, conversation. Otherwise, we're inside of the little fragments that have splintered into uh, you know, these 3 billion Truman shows. Yeah, I wanna just add one piece on that, which is um, we, uh, we were in West Virginia, that we saw this home with um, rebel flags and other bad stuff on the, on the outside. So we went in and we interviewed the guy. And the long story short is, and we talked to his neighbors too, and he lives in YouTube. And he said that, he said, I watch YouTube all day. And he's in this world you're describing. And basically over time he's gotten, and he would say this, I, he wouldn't say worse and worse, but more and more radical in his ideas. Um, his neighbors would certainly say that. And when we stepped away from it, the, the harsh, there was this moment where I thought, this isn't you know Adolf Hitler back in Germany programming this guy. This is Larry and Sergey out in San Francisco programming this guy. Now, I don't wanna point the finger that directly, but I thought this is sick. I mean, this is just sick what's going on. And to your point, the, the 15 billion, I mean, it's manifesting in powerful ways all day long, all day long. Yeah, yeah if, I can, if I can add just a couple other examples and I, and I wanna make sure, um, you know, <laughs> it, it, this can be a really depressing conversation and I wanna just hold people in, um, you know, we'll talk probably about some of these, how, how bad this is only to create the recognition because the awareness is what creates choice. So a couple other, unfortunately, bad examples. If you were a teen girl um, and landing on a dieting video on YouTube, um, what is YouTube's goal? How much have you paid for your YouTube account, you know, recently? nothing. So how do they make money? Obviously, how are they worth $500 billion in market cap? Well, actually more than a trillion if you count all of Google combined. 
Um, it's through harvesting more attention and figuring out what's the perfect next video to get you to watch. And 70% of YouTube's total traffic, they have a billion hours a day of watch time, more than that. And 70% of that comes not from people typing in, hey, I want to search for this educational video or this how-to video. 70% comes from YouTube figuring out and calculating what's the perfect thing to show you. And no matter where you start, the thing that's more engaging from where you are usually is something more extreme. So if you're a teen girl and you watched a dieting video, Two years ago, YouTube would recommend anorexia videos because those were the kinds of things that tended to keep that audience there uh, longer. If you watched a 9-11 uh, news video, it would recommend 9-11 conspiracy theories. If you watched a, um, uh, the, a moon landing, it would recommend flat earth conspiracy theories, which it recommended hundreds of millions of times. As in the film, there's the, um, the ex-YouTube recommendations engineer, Guillaume Chaslow, who's shown just how distorted and warped uh, the algorithm is, and that it wants to identify which perfect rabbit hole that brings you down narrower and narrower um, that, you know, can it pop you into. In fact, the top 15 recommended keywords he used to track, what are the most recommended um, words or verbs that show up in the right-hand sidebar? So even if you say got off all the Alex Jones or you got the anorexia off, in general, what's the kind of background radiation that YouTube would, would show you? And again, it wants to tap into that lizard brain. So the top 15 keywords uh, were hates, destroys, obliterates, um, you know, owns. Uh, it's like, you know, Jordan Peterson destroys social justice warrior and Ben Shapiro owns, you know, college student in that art Q&A. It's that kind of thing. So it's the kind of speech that is conflict-ridden, that is hate-driven, that is uh, in-group, out-group uh, driven. And I think that even if you, quote-unquote, you know, took, you know, took the whack-a-mole stick and you, and you whacked all of these, quote-unquote, you know, bad content or something like that. The net gray area is this kind of background radiation of division and divisiveness. And I think that's also important for people to get is we've been again simmering in this pot for about, you know, 10, 15 years now, and only now are we waking up from it. So we have a lot of, you know, rewinding to do in terms of how our lizard brain is making sense of reality. Let me let me dive into that for a second. Um, first quick comment, Tom, obviously, this really reminds me of the conversation you brought up for a long time about people having to win in conversation. And um, I think that's highly relevant to this. And also, while I'm kind of talking about you for a second, Tom, I should mention, Tristan, that um, I've learned a tremendous amount from Tom about uh, how social media has really destroyed us and eaten us apart. So between the two of you, you know, you both are pretty extraordinary thinkers in this topic. So I'm glad I get to listen to this. Let me ask you about this. So let me ask about this question about our, our paleolithic, paleolithic emotions. Um, so I, I haven't heard before this idea, and I don't think it was in the film, that we've been dosing ourselves with this neurotic thinking for a decade that we effectively are running malware in our wet computers between our ears um, at the same time, which I think is relatively clear to everybody, our lizard brains are being overwhelmed. At the same time, this is also kind of a moment of enlightenment. So entirely ignore the social media and the reality of your movie. But this is also a moment when you could be somewhat optimistic that we're getting to, you know, people are doing more meditation, more mindfulness exercises. Um, there's more conversations about love and increasing social awareness and empathetic circles than there than I've ever seen before. You know, I haven't been an expert on it. Can can those things work together? So can can we become enlightened? Can we learn more about ourselves? Can we do more meditation or bias training or, or or heuristic training to understand that hey, you are being manipulated? Which gets to this this question of Tristan: Is anybody capable of resisting what social media throws at you if you don't turn it off? If if not, why not? And 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 then how can we fix that? Mm -hmm. Well. 
on the first point, I think, you know, with meditation and the kind of increase of yoga and, you know, uh, conversations about just being more loving. And, and I think finding a win-win approach to life as opposed to a win-lose uh, game to reference James Carson's work, uh, the infinite game. Um, I think those are all examples. And in, and in fact, I would say the wisdom traditions in general are about becoming self-aware of our lower level influences, the, you know, the worser angels uh, or devils of our nature and how to reckon with that. I mean, this is actually what all religions in many ways are about. It's about understanding, you know, in Buddhism that the mind creates suffering. And part of the way you escape that is you become more aware of your own thoughts um, and you are able to question them. Um, I'm a fan of a woman named Byron Katie who does a questioning process called the work where you ask four questions of any belief that you're holding. The first question is, is it true? Uh, it's very simple. You know, the world, the world is run by a, you know, a, a deep state pedophile cabal. Um, you just ask, is it true? Um, then you ask, can I be absolutely sure that it's true? Not saying that it's not true, just saying, can, can I be absolutely sure that it's true? This is kind of loosening the grip of your mind on, a, on any belief. And I, I don't need to use the deep state cabal thing. There's, you can do this on any, on any belief. Third question is, how do I react? What happens when I believe that thought that it's true? And then the fourth question is, who would I be without that thought? And it's not meant to say that these things are not, like obviously Epstein was a real person who ran something to do with child sex trafficking um, uh, of some kind, or especially young people uh, uh, trafficking. Um, but, but the question is, how, do we, how does it further warp the, the next set of thoughts and beliefs that we have? Um, and, I, and for any of these processes, whether it's meditation or it's yoga, these are essentially that first step of embracing our paleolithic hardware, the fact that we do get hijacked by fear, by anger. You know, when we're in fear or when we're uh, uh, threatened, we come back with more certainty, not more doubt or humility or calmness. We have to know that about ourselves for us to be able to overcome it. And I think that all of these practices, whether it's nonviolent communication or the work um, or, um, you know, mindfulness are all examples of embracing our paleolithic emotions, but, but coming to terms of it in a healthy and constructive and wise way. And so we need that. But then on the second side, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what you were asking. You were saying about if we can. Well, so is anyone, I can, I can build off directly what you said. Um, what you're describing requires tremendous humility, right? What you're describing is first this recognition that our brains are wet computers, 140,000 years old, and they're not. Uh, they're, not, they're not up to speed in what's going on right now, right? They're not up to speed for the the AI that uses us as a voodoo doll behind the social media engines, right? Like that recognition or that, you know, you know the, the televangelist on, on air that's asking you to send money you don't have in so he can buy a jet, it's manipulating you. That recognition that you can be manipulated. Um, you know, it's sort of, it, 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 it uh, it's kind of a Dunning-Kruger question, right? Like, are, let me ask you very clearly, uh, is there a mass of people who just will never get it, aren't effectively smart enough to know how flawed we are? D do they not have the capacity to have the humility to realize that our brains are so riven with bias? Well, I think that the key thing here is to recognize, first of all, this is a universal thing. So hopefully the thing that's more optimistic about the film is that we're actually all in the same boat. As another joke, we're all in team humanity. We may not just, we just may not know it yet. Because it's not like because you and you know, the three of us here are talking about social approval, that therefore we're the smart ones and we know that we're not influenced by social approval. I today will probably do a search for the social dilemma and see what people are saying. And when there's that, you know, again, one negative comment out of 100, 
does my mind think about the 99 that were positive or does my mind go to the one that was negative? Like it's going to go to that one that was negative. Um, I did um, Ellen DeGeneres' show recently and she sort of expressed the same thing, you know, and it's, it's especially vulnerable for children, by the way, because what's so dangerous about this is that we're all influenced, but then children are probably even more uh, by the same phenomena. So I think, you know, the good news is this is not about, oh, there's, you know, we, the three smart people here, then those dumb people that got influenced by Russian propaganda. It's actually that all of us are so easily influenced. You know, one thing about fake news and what the Russians did is it's actually not even about news, it's about comments. So they'll go into these comment threads and the, the, in the Senate hearing that we, we did a written testimony for, we, we referenced the work that shows that they work in three. So you'll have one person who says, let's say you want to influence public conversation about the social dilemma. So the first comment will be, oh, it's a bad movie for these reasons. And the second person will disagree with the first person because they'll say, no, 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 it's a good movie for these reasons. And then the third person will come in and say, and kind of resolve it in the direction of, no, it's a bad movie. Because we do better, like we will actually believe it more when people kind of debate and then they land in the direction that we want it to be. And so that's not fake news. That's not, you know, the Pope endorses Donald Trump. That's influencing what, what we believe, like the conversation is about a topic. And that's happening all the time on Twitter. I mean, I basically don't trust Twitter as a vehicle when you see people debating anything. Because you have to assume that it is, it is so easily manipulated by bots. Um, in, in the case of coronavirus, I think it was close to 50% of the tweets that were spreading disinformation were actually uh, run by bots uh, during, during the coronavirus uh, in the first few months of it. So that's just to say that this is actually something that affects all of us, but there is a difference between those of us who accept that it's happening versus those of us who don't. And when we use the word manipulation, we tend to think of some kind of active puppet master who's trying to see if this will work on you. And then we think, oh no, that's not gonna work on me. But I think it's more subtle than that. It's actually the selection of which information we're seeing in the first place. Instead of it being about manipulation, let's call it elimination of the other information that we don't see. Because when we see a newsfeed of affirmation of just things that show us things that agree with us, and when you get more feedback for saying an extreme thing. So one of the other phenomena is if I say, you know, an extreme comment, I both get a lot of hate, but then I also get a ton of positive feedback, which can make me artificially feel righteous and correct about something. And that, that's not manipulation. That's just a warping of the kind of feedback you would normally get. If I said a racist comment on a street, I wouldn't get that positive feedback. But on social media, you will get lots and lots of positive feedback from more extreme groups that can then, you know, solidify into uh, you know, because we're all doing this remotely. So that's, it, it's, it's really subtle, the kind of warping that's occurring. And I think when people hear the word manipulation, they think of an explicit advertisement or they think of a specific news story and not the subtler aspects of how the, the whole machine is working around us. You know, that makes me less optimistic than more. Sorry, Tom, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I think that, that that phenomenon you're you're describing is so critical to this whole story. And, and to me, it started somewhere around 1994 or so with cable t television is, I'll never forget I had this conversation with Glenn Beck and he was telling me what you just said, which is the more radical thing he says, the more people hate him, the more people love him, the more money Rupert pays him, the more famous he is, the better apartment he has, the more fancy dinners he goes to. And he's like, and it was a drug. It was just a drug. And, and he said, I knew it was happening. I was conscious of it and I couldn't let go of it. Well, that, those things are the things that then feed the internet, right? And then, and then we elites, because you said it, we ain't free of this. I go, to, I go to these places, I hear the things people say, and I'm like, oh my God, we, we're in it too. 
Of course, yeah. that sounds horrible what I just said, but. No, to, can I just add to what you said, Tom? Because I think that was, it was so important. Um, I've heard Glenn Beck in interviews say the same thing. You know, he said it was a drug. You know, I would get, the way I got higher ratings, the way I got a higher salary, the way I show up at those fancier dinners is the more extreme thing that I would say. Right. So we've always had, I mean, going back to, you know, the 1800s and the Mexican-American War, you know, yellow, yellow journalism and being able to assert the most salacious thing, which in that case got us into a war. I think what's subtler here, and we've had it, I want to make sure people don't think that we're thinking this is all new with social media. As you said, partisan media, partisan television, partisan radio has, has, has made this a multi-decade phenomenon that's been arising. But what I want people to really get is where are now television producers and radio producers looking yeah. for news? They're looking at Twitter, which means that Twitter and Facebook and, and, and Instagram and, and YouTube actually are the kind of the water supply for what becomes later downstream, you know, yeah. showing up on radio and television. So when before people say, well, this is not really new or, you know, this is really just TV and radio that are driving it, not social media, I would challenge you to think, you know, this has actually affected the inputs for what goes in to television and radio. Um, and just two other examples of that, just to make that partisanship really clear about how this happened. Um, what is, you know, Twitter's goal is, is, you know, how much also have you paid for your Twitter account recently? Nothing. How do they make all their money by getting you engaged to keep you coming back by getting enough of your attention? If you're a new user on Twitter, how are they going to get you to do that? They need to make sure you follow more people, which is actually one of the things that's described in the film is one of the AIs. There's three, there's those three guys behind the control room. And one of them is called the growth AI, um, right. and which is actually about getting you to invite more people or getting you to join or add more people as friends or something like that. So if you remember back to the early days of Twitter, you would follow a couple of people. Then what would it do? It would say, here's other users you should follow just like that. So now if I follow someone on the left, what is Twitter going to do? Say, here's 10 people you should follow on the right? No. It's going to say, here's 10 more people you can follow on the left. If I follow an ISIS terrorist, uh, what did Twitter do? This is famously because people in the State Department um, uh, identified this, uh, that if you followed one ISIS terrorist, Twitter would say, oh, here's 10 more ISIS terrorists that you can follow. And so wherever you go, Twitter just exacerbates that bias. Um, and so no matter what side you're on, it's not a political conversation. It has made our worldviews more and more narrow and more and more extreme. Um, because no matter where you start, uh, so let's say you start with certain people who are popular, it wants to recommend, again, the more extreme voices, because those are the ones that would keep you coming back to Twitter more often and retweeting, and they're calculating that in their model. Which of these people I could recommend for you to follow would be the most likely to get you to retweet, like, comment, et cetera. And those tend to be the most outrageous. So as you yeah. said, I'm just reaffirming everything you just said, Tom. Well, and the other part of that, I just want to put a cap on it because I'll say this a lot and people will, first of all, it's everywhere. It's not like MSNBC ain't checking Twitter. Like, you know, you may hate Fox. Okay, MSNBCs. And, and part of what's happened is, and, and just to put a point on it, it seems to be the case that Roger Ailes, you may hate him, I get that, okay, he had a pretty good gut because he operated on gut and he made these decisions based on sort of like creative arguments. Nowadays, you don't need to do that to your point because the, the computer's going to tell you the story. So these stories being what they are, as they're creating the origin, it, it's not like it ends up in MSNBC and then they do it with love. They're going to do it, too. They're going to go right out to that edge. And what they have right now, to be clear, people say Trump derangement syndrome. I think we all owe it to ourselves to be a little bit aware of the fact that he pushes that edge further and further out in a way that just makes it 
more problematic as far as I can as it that that would be my take on it and it has to do ultimately with the emotion and the lack of clarity that we were talking about earlier that it creates 100% yeah and and you know um the way that the newsfeed works it's it's obviously people think um this is actually really important because in case this isn't obvious people think well I chose my friends on Facebook I chose the people that I follow so I'm just I'm the one who see who's responsible for the newsfeed that I get right therefore there's no Twitter isn't doing that. That's me. It's my fault because I chose those people. But that's not true at all because it, it is computing which of those thousands and thousands of stories from those 500 people that I follow are the ones that are going to show up in my newsfeed. And back in 2016 and 2015, or 2016 really, um, the newsfeed found that there was this one magic word that anytime it showed up in a, a post, it would always get the most uh, likes, retweets, uh, re, sorry, reshares, and comments. It didn't know why, it just knew that this word is pattern recognition. It's just an AI saying, okay, what kinds of words, emotions, phrases, noun phrases tend to get the most engagement? And there was this one phrase through all of 2016 that always got engagement. And do you know what it was? Trump. Because that word, anything that included his name in it, it would always be associated with something outrageous that he had said. And so the newsfeed learned that and it started putting Trump at the center of everyone's newsfeed. But me saying this is not a partisan a judgment. This is just, um, he was finding a way to not just be an attention magnet like he always does, but by exploiting the fact that the AI is looking for a pattern. And he demonstrated a pattern that anything he said would always get the most engagement. And then it, our news feeds, if you remember in 2016 specifically, was Trump, 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 Trump. It was all Trump all the time because they were just showing, they assumed that what we click on is the same as what we want, which is not true. It's, it's just like if you're driving down a freeway and according to Facebook and Google, if your eyes always look at the car crash over and over again, they say, oh, you, you must just love car crashes. And they feed you more and more and more car crashes. And so we have to make this distinction between where our attention goes and what our values are or what we would have wanted in the ideal version of our lives. With three little boys at home, I've sort of learned that bullies are kind of limbically genius, right? They know exactly what buttons to push with really low effort to make someone feel horrible. And I think... Um, Trump probably has a bit of that genius, like exactly how to get us to pay attention and pucker up when he wants to poke at someone and how to do it. And, you know, what you've taught us is that the AI is looking for those high leverage, high intensity, high attention moments. And that's what it is. And so he's just tuned right into it. So what you're effectively saying is a fifth grade bully has kind of profound limbic genius that the AI recognizes. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, RP, you can think of it as, um, you know, we actually did, a, we have a podcast called Your Undivided Attention. We interviewed um, Fadi Karan from Lavaz, which is a group that studies these dynamics in especially developing countries. And why are authoritarians rising everywhere around the world all at once uh, using this kind of these bullying strategies? The episode is called The Bully's Pulpit, because essentially we think of it as an even playing field. And, you know, I'm just saying something and you're saying something and we'll compete based on the quality of what we're saying, the marketplace of ideas. But in the attention economy... <laughs> the things that get the most likes and retweets are essentially the most, uh, not just outrageous, but the most conflict-driven, the most bullying kind of speech. So bullies have a non-neutral asymmetric advantage. Um, and uh, you know, we often say in our, in our work that hate has a home field advantage there in the go. attention economy. And, and there's this bullshit asymmetry principle, or as Churchill put it, uh, what is it? Um, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. It's yeah. very, very hard to dislodge a lie it's very easy to toss one out there. They get stuck. 
Um, I just want to mention like kind of news items, right? So Roger Ailes, you were mentioning earlier, he told me in 2001 that the reason Fox News, he told me this to my face, is because they know how to keep people afraid and people are afraid they come back. And Tom, just quickly while we're kind of going through the list, I met Glenn Beck at, at TMP at your event, and I loved my conversation with him over a dinner table. And now I look at what he's doing on the internet. It's horrible. He's gone back to the same things he said he wasn't going to do, so far as I can tell. So that drug, you know, maybe it was just money, got back under his skin, if I can be, you know, so controversial as to say so. Tristan, let me ask you about um, asymmetry, right? So a lot of what we're talking about here is our paleolithic brains, you know, going head to head with an AI, that understands everything about us. In fact, we willfully, willfully gave the AI all sorts of information about ourselves that it uses back on us to suck our attention, to mine us. I love this idea about it. Your words about an attention extraction economy, uh, and it's and it you know it's kind of hauling us out from the inside. It's taking away as the, the the guy in your movie who was from Pinterest says like he's got these beautiful kids running around yet he can't get off his phone. I know exactly what that feels like. Um, so it is an asymmetry. An information battleground, you're talking about the State Department, the information battleground is a real realm. I want to talk a little bit about national security implications here. This is true warfare inside information space, and I've worked in that space as well. So historically, weapons of mass destruction, if you go back through kind of weaponry, the weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, biological, chemical, required a state apparatus to create. So that was sort of the basis of the Cold War. Then 9-11, other things kind of woke us up to this asymmetric principle. An airplane all of a sudden can be something approximating a WMD, a radiological dispersal device. Even an AK-47 in a mall kind of can have the effect of a WMD, right? So the asymmetric, look at the whole global war on terror. That's all about asymmetry. What you're showing us now is that the information realm, which again is a real place of warfare, this asymmetry is hitting us again. Is it simply, so in warfare, there's a good guy and the bad guy. It depends where you sit, obviously. Is it the social media feature set simply allowing too much power into the wrong hands? Is it that the worst of society is getting the societal nuclear weapon by virtue of these social media businesses? Is that what's happening here? Yeah, there's, there's so many great things buried in what you just said. So um, I want to track all of them. So one is um, about asymmetric power. Uh, and the other is about, um, so let's first just make sure we acknowledge what's going on when we say that and, and the, the level of asymmetry. Um, I think this is really important. We have these paleolithic brains and, and hardware that we're bringing to the table. Then there's this piece of glass. And behind that piece of glass is like the strongest computing infrastructure that the world has ever built. Like where's the strongest you know, <laughs> supercomputers in the world? The it's wealthiest like, corporations in the history of mankind. The wealthiest corporations in the history of mankind. And what is powering them is this massive supercomputing infrastructure that's you know knows everything about you and you know nothing about it and it can make predictions. You don't even know it exists. You know, people don't even know that it exists. And the way that I want people to get this is, um, imagine that you uh, you know you and I were playing chess against Gary Kasparov, right? And um, you know so why why do we lose against Gary? Because you know, sit, we're sitting there at the chessboard, we're thinking, okay, if I do this, he's going to do this, and then if I do this on top of that, he'll do this, and we're playing out a few moves ahead. But because we're not the best chess players, at least so far as I know about you, uh, we are, you know, playing maybe ten moves ahead, and he wins because he's seeing more moves ahead of the chess player. Between two players, if one's seeing more moves ahead than the other, the one that sees more moves ahead can simply play out more simulations, play out more predictions. They will win. When Gary plays against the computer now, and he loses. He was playing out as many human 
you know, uh, possibilities as is possible in the best human brain that we've like lugged to the, to the, to the, to the, to the battle here, to the chess match. So when he loses, it's not just that he loses it. That's like, that's all of humanity losing for all time. Cause you might have someone who's tiny bit better than Gary, but you're not going to have someone that's exponentially better than Gary. And so from that moment onward, there's like a new civilizational epoch where in that particular game, technology has simply outcompeted the human brain. There's just no more winning for human brains. So now when you realize there I am, and I'm going to watch one more YouTube video, or I'm going to scroll my finger one more YouTube, uh, Facebook story, and you think this is going to be the last one because I've got other stuff to do. And then you end up scrolling for another hour and you think, oh man, I should have had more self-control. What was really going on is you're sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to do this, but then it's just going to show me one more story. I'm playing out a move ahead thinking I'm going to win that battle. And the reason we lose is because the computer has this little avatar voodoo doll like version of me, like the little Tristan mini and all the clicks and likes I've ever made, put little hair on the voodoo doll, all the watch time puts little clothes on the voodoo doll. And it can use that voodoo doll, that little simulation of me to predict if I were to show you this, you know, newsfeed story versus that newsfeed story, I know that you're going to stay before you know you're going to stay. And so again, the asymmetry is there. Now people might disagree with this because they'll say, well, I have more self-control, but I want people to also realize Facebook is not maximizing this. So if you really wanted the demonstration, it'd be really interesting to get Google and Facebook for one day to do the maximum asymmetry, just so people could see and feel Ooh. how powerful it is. Cause they're actually not trying to maximize the addiction. They're toning it down in part because of the public pressure that we've, uh, you know, in our community has exerted on them. But if you really wanted a demo of that asymmetry, you'd get it. And the same thing, as you said, now to enter into the, the warfare space, um, so instead you know, of me being up till two in the morning looking at ridiculous shit I don't need to see, which happens to me all the time, I would I'd be up all night. You'd be up all night. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the later you are up all night, um, your, your willpower and the number of moves yeah. that you're seeing ahead is going down. So it's a sort of a, a circular feedback loop, a vicious cycle where our capacity is going down while their capacity is going up. And by the way, every day that we spend with these systems... I'm they're making more, more ammunition used against me. You're getting it more ammunition. You're giving it more data. You're getting it better predictions and also more resources that get invested into bigger supercomputers and more compute power. So it's an, it's a self-fulfilling loop of it's actually dumbing us down while it's making them smarter because we're also becoming less and less of ourselves. As we say, you know, we've made this mistake of thinking we're looking into a mirror, but we're looking into a funhouse mirror that has warped the image that comes back to us into seeing this kind of lizard brain version of ourselves. We kind of joke that with all the conspiracies through YouTube, you know, it's actually the fact that lizard people do run around and walk among us and it's us because our lizard brains have become the predominant basis of our choices because of these technology products that are downgrading. That's where that phrase human downgrading came from. Um, I don't know if you wanted to jump in, but the, the, the uh, World War III sort of digital information warfare one is, a, is the next critical point. No, go for it. Because I, 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 and while you're doing that, Tristan, I will make sure a lot of people in the national security community get a look at this. So if you have any specific messages there as well, uh, please feed them in there, manipulate them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is so critical. I mean, um, I, the reason I wanted to do this with you both is because I actually am, I'm concerned that the national security community doesn't get this as much because we tend to undervalue the influence of information or psychology. We think like, well, we've got the bigger nukes and we've got the bigger aircraft carriers and we've got, you know, um, massive asymmetric capacity in terms of how many resources we're spending and we've got Boeing and Lockheed and everybody else. But, um, you know, while we've been obsessed with protecting our physical borders and building walls and all of this, we've left the digital border wide open. 
Um, if Russia or China tried to fly a cruise missile or a, a, a more like a, you know, a plane into the United States, they'd be shot down by the Department of Defense. But that's in our physical environment. But when our environment and our, and our infrastructure and our reality doesn't live in the physical space anymore, when all of our conversations, when all of our choices, when all of our actions are living in the virtual space, that's run and operated by Facebook. So when Russia or China try to fly an information plane into the virtual space, instead of being met by the Department of Defense, they're met by a Facebook algorithm that says, yeah, exactly which subgroup, Facebook group, or zip code do you want to target? And we'll have, we have a white glove that's going to take you right there into the landing strip. Yeah. So I that's think it's, it's, it's critical for people to get this because we spend, you know the number better than I do, the billions and billions of dollars that we spend on defense every year protecting our physical borders but our digital borders are left wide open and we're only as good as the, you know, the small amount of resources that, that a Facebook or a Google will spend on that. They clearly spend it on cybersecurity, but not on the information security side. And our, we have foreign actors like, like Russia, but people talk about Russia, but there's you know, uh, China, Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, Israel. There's many different actors that are playing in this now. And one of the techniques, for example, with YouTube is you will uh, point a bunch of, like you've got a bot farm of automated browsers and you'll watch one video. Let's say um, it's a, uh, I don't know, um, some kind of war veteran video or something like that. So you're targeting um, people. So they're manipulating the AI. Yeah, because what they'll do, and I think this is actually Sorry, at your conference finish that, finish that, because I interrupted you. So, so a, a nefarious actor, Russia, has a bot farm. They'll go look at a video in, you know, some American YouTube, uh, American audience YouTube on war veterans. And then exactly, and then what they'll do is they'll point the same users at this next video that they want to counter train the YouTube AI to recommend. So they'll just yeah. direct, essentially, you know, the neurons fire together, wire together. I right? didn't so know that. I, the only good news I can give you, Tristan, from having worked in information ops and working with the government, even currently is they know they suck at it. <laughs> the only good news I have for you is, you know, we, we know that we're being outclassed. We know we're far behind. Yeah. And then there's but the other, the other emotion or thought that you'll get there a lot, which is fascinating is from a patriotic point of view. And, and that's where I live. There's this massive irony that the most powerful weapons in the world right now, which are Google and Facebook and all this other stuff are American. They're American companies um, and, and as you say, A, they actually are a, a, a wide open target set onto America. And B, those firms aren't willing to help the U.S. government in many instances. They have walkouts when they're trying to support the DOD on other things. And, and so it's, it's kind of extraordinary how, and by the way, if I'm Russia, I'm going to feed that all day. I want the tech elite to really, really not want to help the U.S. DOD, right? That's exactly right. In fact, I was going to say, RP, this is a, a thing that um, I at least have heard from one source that they're actually doing is essentially Facebook and Google are their biggest weapons because we've strapped, we have knowingly as a country strapped on this suicide vest and Facebook and, and, and sorry, uh, Russia and China are having a field day with it. So they actually don't want um, uh, change to happen. So when the walkouts happen, they'll, amp they'll go into the information environment and amplify the walkouts. Um, sure. Uh, just to, because they don't want um, the tech companies to work with uh, the DOD. Or if, they, if there's activists like me who are successful in, let's say, um, putting pressure on the tech platforms and needing them to reform their business models, which will take out, let's say, the micro-targeting capacities that they want, they will sow counter-information on me <laughs> to make sure that I'm not successful so that they can keep their information weapons at their disposal. There's even evidence, as I understand it, that when there's acquisitions, they, they want to make sure that these companies get acquired um, 
into the existing infrastructure so that they can keep using these tools. So there's actually narrative manipulation, uh, economic manipulation. Um, uh, you know, there, there's, there's many, many different aspects to, to the game here. Um, and I think what we have to see is that we have knowingly taken our own infrastructure, you know, that we've wrapped around ourselves and embraced ourselves with, and that's the very thing that makes us vulnerable in this digital information space. So we need to spend radically more resources on protecting um, the country. And it's going to be this multi-pronged thing where so long as we have a Facebook, we need to be as safe and protected as possible. We need as many employees working this as possible. We need them to, you know, 5X spend, 10X spend what they're spending now on security. But we also probably need to completely change the model here in the long run. So it's kind of a multi-pronged thing like climate change. You both want Exxon helping for the transition to regenerative energy economy, and you want there you know, to be a consumer movement, and you want there to be uh, you know, a fledgling economy of new regenerative energy uh, companies that will replace the kind of Exxons of the world. And I think we have a similar thing here where Facebook is kind of the Exxon Eddie and human lizard brains, and we need to replace it in the long run with um, something that's regenerative to, to humanity and not extractive. So this is a humongous yeah. point you just made. I'm sorry, Tom, go ahead. Are you going to say something? Well, I was just, I, I don't want to take you off course, though, because I know what we're doing right here is really important. I'm, let me just give you a comment. And I, there's something I, I want to outline a solution, which I have a thought, but we don't have to do it right now. Um, first of all, it's so the, the Donald Trump word that you described before, which basically means like this is the most famous word of all time, Trump, right? In, the, in human history, the most powerful word of all time is Trump. And if you consider, we go back to what we were talking about before, that Donald Trump might be the worst guy in the world. He might. I'm not saying he's not. I'm not a fan. Um, but you think of the distraction of the Trump-Russia collusion thing and how much the Russians loved that. Like, what a beautiful thing that we went off on this tangent running over there, Trump and yelling and screaming. And meantime, they're just in us like they're all over us, including that one, by the way. It's staggering. It's such a like, what a story. Well, add Corona, add George Floyd, all add all these things that we're doing to ourselves. And there was a New York Times headline today. It said the Russians all have to do is sit back and quote the president back at the Americans. Right. They don't have to make anything up right now. And it doesn't have to be Trump. It could be anybody in the story. Yeah, that's right. I think this is a critical point you just made, RP, which is they don't actually have to make up new narratives. Although, as you know, um, in the KGB, I believe is 25 percent of a KGB agent's time had to be spent on coming up with powerful, plausible disinformation stories. Yeah. So you have, you have to realize these people are highly practiced at coming up with things. But as you just said, they don't actually have to come up with new stories. All they need to do is amplify existing voices in our society and turn the dial up on the Texas secessionists and turn the dial up on the you know, you know, ex-veterans who are now against um, you know, the US government and just have those voices be the predominant voices that they want. They don't even have to uh, quote unquote, manipulate the public. They just have to dial up the voices they want. One example I like sharing since the, the director of our film, um, the film, The Social Dilemma, his two previous films were about climate change, chase, chasing ice and chasing coral. And um, one thing that he didn't realize what we shared with him is um, another sort of group that Russia had amplified a few years ago was actually anti-fracking pro-environmentalists in the United States. Now you might say, why would they do that when you see the kind of anti-fracking news show up in your newsfeed? And I'm a climate person. So that I would probably be, you know, endorsing or clicking like on, on those kinds of stories. But they actually wanted to amplify those sentiments in our country because it means we have to buy more foreign oil. Sure. So again, you don't have to sow new information. You just have to amplify the voices that align with um, the narratives that you want to succeed. And they've never, it's never been easier to identify those groups and amplify them. Well, I will, I will go check for polonium in my sushi after I say this, and you should check for Novichok in your coffee. 
But as McCain said, Russia is a gas station masquerading as a nation. And obviously, but petroleum is a huge aspect of their economy. Um, so I'm being conscious of your time. Let me um, let me make sure I at least get to one question about, you know, maybe something, you know, a positive future here. Um, there is a, a video of a guy named Robert Epstein. I'm sure you're quite familiar with who he is talking to the Senate uh, about how Facebook could be harnessed for for even more evil. I could be used to manipulate elections, et cetera. Um, and I kind of find it fascinating watching him. I'd, I'd love to sort of your views on him. But what I want to kind of get to is you make this great point about no matter where you are in the country determines what Google writes back to you when you say climate change is. And um, if, in fact, Google just told the truth, Right. If, if and, and there is peer reviewed truth and there's this, of course, there's a big question right now about what is truth. But, you know, we've talked a lot about this on the show and I think we pretty fervently believe that there's a way to tell what is peer reviewed and accurate and what's bullshit. So if Google decided that they wanted to just tell the truth on climate change when you asked a question one way or the other. And I know this is that's why I mentioned Epstein. This becomes a Robert Epstein. This becomes a very complicated topic. Um, then it would have an immense amount of power. What if these unbelievable weapons were instead of you know focused on just making money, which happens to be by limically hijacking us and sort of hollowing us out from the inside, as your movie does a great job showing. Instead, they were focused on, you know, at least being neutral, if not trying to do something good. What would happen? Is there a possibility there? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think on this example, just so people who haven't seen the film yet recognize it, is that if you type into Google, climate change is, you would get different results and different auto-completions uh, based on where you live. So if you're in um, the United States, you'd say climate change is not real, I think was the first autocompletion result for, for different places in the country. Versus if you were in Denmark, you'd see climate change is a wicked problem. Versus if you're in China, you would say climate change is an existential threat. Um, so depending on where you are, you would see different autocompletions. And the point is, it's not doing that based on what it thinks is true. It's just looking at the patterns for where people, you know, what people end up typing most popularly. So if you're in somewhere where there's high denial of climate change, then climate change is not real is going to be the first result. And if you're in somewhere where uh, people are very against climate change and think that it's very real, you're going to see that, you know, it's an existential threat or something. And the point is Robert Epstein's work, um, I've met him once, I don't know him well, is that those autocompletions actually do have an effect that he has measured on public beliefs. So now to your question, could the platforms consciously design specific interventions for critical topics? Now, you might say, well, who would I trust? That's a hell of a lot of That's power. That's a big question. And, and so then you get into this crisis of trust. Well, do I trust the you know, executives at Google to make that call? But then they're making calls on behalf of 3 billion people in hundreds of languages in hundreds of countries to, you know, to make that choice. Do I trust the content moderators? Those are usually minimum wage uh, people. This is like the same thing. Of, do I take down this piece of content or not? You know, who do I trust to make that decision? Do I trust Mark Zuckerberg? Do I trust the minimum wage Arizona contractors who are the content moderators? Do I trust the content sweatshops in the Philippines, which we, if you don't know the history of this, um, there are, you know, sweatshops in the Philippines, we call them psychological sweatshops or offshoring pain because your daily experience is looking at all the content that's ever been flagged, which is suicide and self-harm and self-cutting and child pedophilia and all the worst stuff. And you see a newsfeed day, you know, moment after moment of this stuff that's actually had mass, massive psychological damage for these people. And these are the people that are saying and adjudicating what is good, what is not good, what do we want to do? Now, to your, your question specifically, if we had a democratic process to adjudicate for critical topics, what is the context that we want to show people? 
we did an episode on our podcast, um, which people can check out. It's called Your Undivided Attention with Christiana Figueres, um, who negotiated the Paris Climate Accords. And we actually said, what if there was a San Francisco Accords where according to this specific topic, which is existential and on an urgent timeline, the technology companies got together to not just say, here's authoritative information, but here are things that people can do. So imagine Facebook became this global coordination engine for all of the kind of actions who you could vote for that would be climate uh, friendly policy. Um, what actions you can take in your community, what kind of regenerative practices you can use, what, you know, how to compare whether if I became, became a vegan versus uh, stop taking international flights, what difference do those things make? And the entire um, you know, influence of these large technology companies could be on accelerating our global action towards key problems, the SDGs, uh, racism, inequality, things like that. But again, you're gonna come down to who would make that choice. And I think we have evidence from citizen juries and sortition and uh, Lawrence, is it, no, Jim Fishkin's work at Stanford on deliberative democracies where you could have citizen juries for those key topics to create those kinds of things. And just as a point of good news, both Facebook and Google, at least Facebook recently launched this climate information center. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. I have. I actually can't, ironically came up, my, my, one of my, Charles Fletcher is professor at University of Hawaii, one of my great idols and my uncle, a uh, great climate expert. And we're having this conversation about precisely this topic and about the chance I get to speak with you. I open up my Facebook, boom, and all of a sudden the climate center is there. I thought, oh, this is a little too much. But I think it was just timed with their release, not with our conversation. Yeah, well, and it's a good example. I mean, Facebook did this also with COVID where, you know, because there was just lots and lots of bottom-up, unchecked virality, you know, conspiracy theories, 5G, Bill Gates popping up. They also created a top-down COVID information center yep. that said, here are the latest recommendations they're starting to curate. I think a fundamental question we're going to have to face if you zoom out to where this is all going is in a world of GPT-3 where you can actually invent text, user-generated text that is completely indistinguishable from human text. And it's actually easier and easier to pass the Turing test, by the way, because our speech is being downgraded into simpler noun phrases, three-word typo, like, you know, the kind of teenager speech on, 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 on these platforms. It's easier and easier to fake user-generated content, which means that we're going to actually value, hopefully... Um, more authoritative sources and privileged publisher content because we won't be able to trust user-generated content in the future. Um, and, and maybe that's a way in which we can actually move to a world of, hey, we're not really so user-generated. We're not driven by a user-generated content economy uh, because, because we can't trust it. Um, and that's, that's one way to see what's happened is that yellow journalism was bad, but Facebook and Twitter have actually decentralized yellow journalism. So each of us get rewarded when we're the Glenn Beck. We're the ones that are rewarded for the most salacious thing that we can say. And we need to stop that kind of decentralized yellow journalism incentive, which, which kind of defocusing and deprioritizing user-generated content would do. Obviously, that's not going to make everyone happy because then it's privileging a few gatekeepers again. But I think we actually have to ask some very critical questions as we see what the net effects of all of this are if you leave it unchecked. The um, and I would just add to this point you make about you know it's it's not just that it's an extrapolation of of yellow journalism or TV or whatever and there's a moment in your film where you're sitting next to a white haired gentleman who sort of makes that point and 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 on the talk we've had today already you you've pushed back pretty hard at it but part of what isn't made in that moment and I want to make sure it's very clear to what you just said here it, and you said it before is you're faced against an AI with infinite compute power it's not just a newspaper that a million people look at it's it's an AI that just you look at and it's tuned into you and your weaknesses it's uh, it's and, a, and, and, and whispering and completely overwhelmed 
and whispering different things into each person's ear based on what it knows that you are most afraid of. So based on who the highest bidder is to tell it to do so without any oversight into who's behind that. Is it true that, um, and we can edit this out if it's not true because we waste time if it is. Is it true that um, the campaigns have full-time Facebook staffers working there who help them understand how to use Facebook advertising most effectively? Yeah, that, that was definitely true in the 2016 election. Um, and uh, Facebook actually was surprised. Uh, those staffers and contractors were surprised because the Trump campaign was getting results that they'd never seen before. Um, and in terms of uh, the way that they were all, and also the way they were using the tools of micro-targeting and split testing, um, they were doing things that they'd never seen anybody do before. Um, I happen to know personally some people who've been involved with um, some of the really dark uh, micro-targeting techniques that exist and lookalike models. As we mentioned in the film, you know, I can go into a conspiracy theory group on Facebook and I can download the user IDs and, the, and I can find email addresses for the people who are in that group. And then I can start to message them with things that'll activate a specific emotional cord, whether it's I can find the neurotic aspects of that group. I can find the fearful aspects of that group. I can find the um, curious aspects of that group. And then I can basically see I can use the lookalike models to say, hey, give me a thousand or 10,000 people who look just like that neurotic group in that conspiracy theory group. So now I don't just find the thousand people in that, you know, flat earth group or that QAnon group. I can actually find a much larger group based on the same emotional resonance happening more broadly uh, across the network. Like, why would we ever do this to ourselves? I think it's because- You can wire them so strong that you're not just identifying, creating a fan, you're creating a soldier. You're and I, warrior's too nice of a term, right? But you're creating someone who will grab an M16 and go to a pizza restaurant in Washington D.C. and shoot it up because he thinks there's a pedophile ring in the basement. And we know from Facebook's Talking. own and we know from Facebook's own research that 64% of the extreme groups that people joined were due not to people organically finding and selecting those groups themselves but due to Facebook's own recommendation system. You made that point earlier in this call. And I don't think I saw that in the movie. And to me, that's another, I'm falling out of my chair. Can't believe it. Um, it should be illegal. I can't, you know, you, you, we'll have to make sure we catalog it. But some stats you were saying earlier about, you know, what was it? The number of, of people that were driven to, um, not Glenn Beck, who's the, the crazier one. Oh, Alex Jones, 15 billion, uh, 15 billion recommendations. A of, man who said that the Newtown killings weren't real. Yeah. I mean, th- what in the world? And I mean, imagine just so people really get that, like imagine you turned on like the BBC, you know, the most widely watched thing in Europe or something like that, like the default, you know, low number of programming on television sets around the world. And the default programming for the most number of people was this kind of conspiracy content. Like, even if some of those conspiracies were true, what would that do to the psyche of your whole European or you know, global population? And that's kind of what we have to see is that the default programming has been uh, really, really, really damaging. Um, Tom, I'm totally hijacking this. I'm sorry. I have one question I definitely want to ask before we're done. But I, I, you know, you, as I said, you've been a real leader on this thought, this, this area too. And I want to not take all the time. Well, there's a part of me that's frozen. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm like, shit. You know, there's more to think about here. I, 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 I would like to turn the corner a little bit. And, and one, one thing is, I feel very strongly about an answer, and it's a corny word, and it's love. Like, I'm thinking the same thing. Yeah. I'm thinking that you're thinking that, and I'm thinking you're going to get blown out of the water by the AI. 
Well, and, and I know that's true, but but here's the point, though. Here's the point. I mean, you think about the easy-ass stuff we've had to deal with in this generation as compared to storming the beaches, right? It's just, it's a totally different thing. That's where we live. We live in Cushyville. It's relative. It's not true for all of us. Well, we have a real problem on our hands, and we need to enact solutions to these things. When I say we, I'm speaking broadly. The generation of grown-ups that is the grown-ups right now and I really believe this, that the most important thing you can do is start with love. And that's going to ask you to do a bunch of things downstream that if you skip that part, if you say, well, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm about democracy and capitalism, put those down a little bit, put love up top and then move down from there. Well, you're going to start making different choices. And I think it's so important. Tristan, our thing, gather, wonder, practice. We're gathering right now. Wonder is about humble learning. Practice is about healthy practices. You actually are going to have to fight information overload as an individual and as a community through better practices because otherwise, I'm sorry, man, it's not going to be a quick gizmo. It's not going to be a quick law change. It's going to be a battle that's going to take time. And I think we have to start with love and responsibility. Yeah. Tom, can I, can I add to that? I love what you just shared. Um, the, you know, obviously in the long run, we want to change the fundamental digital infrastructure that we live by that we're glued to. In fact, what we say about these systems is what makes them inhumane. You know, we're called the Center for Humane Technology, our nonprofit. What makes these systems inhumane is that we're forced to use infrastructure that we rely on that's contaminated and toxic. The fact that there right. is not another place to go. Uh, another example of that is if you're a teenager, if you're, uh, you see the film, and you say, oh my God, I don't want to use TikTok or Instagram anymore. I'm going to personally opt out. But guess what? All my friends still use Instagram and TikTok. And the Huge. place where they're talking about dating opportunities and who they want right. you know, homework and whatever else is still happening there. And the social rankings of who's most popular in school is based in many cases on in TikTok, who's got the most uh, followers. And so the, the, what makes these diabolical and inhumane is the fact that it's not even an individual choice to opt out. In fact, it's inhumane to put the burden of responsibility on individuals for a systemic problem. That said, just to name, just to name that what we are in, in an inhumane situation, what you just said about culture and coming from love is actually the most important thing, which is um, that if you look at how quickly could these platforms change their business model or even make really radical product changes, even the best case scenario, legislation, product changes, et cetera, are, are, you know, the change rate of how these platforms, I mean, how much has Facebook changed from your experience in the last four years? Like almost negligible, right? I mean, it's mostly the same product. They've cleaned up some things a little bit, but the growth rate of the harms is growing more because suddenly everyone figured out this is the best game in town. It's not just Russia. We've got hundreds of countries who are now playing in the game. We've got many more people generating fake, fake accounts. Um, important another stat is that in th a three month period last year, Facebook took down 2 billion fake accounts in a three month period, 2 billion fake accounts. They have 3 billion actual users, but they took down 2 billion fake accounts. I'm sure they got all of them is kind of the joke, right? So um, I think what we have to um, recognize is that they're not gonna be able to change this, nor is government gonna be able to fix it fast enough. The only thing that then operates on a clock rate of, fic of, of, of meeting the problem at its, at its current rate and trajectory is with culture, which means that we as a civilization, as a people, as a collective people, have to show up with a different, almost like nonviolent or humane protocol, a different participation in these platforms. We have to participate knowing that there's context collapse and it's gonna take everything we say 
out of context and make it easy for someone to create a hate mob for something that you say that sounds like you're saying something else. I've posted, there's a, there's a good video or uh, not video, a photo of someone saying, I prefer mangoes to oranges. And then the response is, oh, so you hate blackberries and, and, you know, and, and, and cherries. And um, I can't even believe that you're saying this. And it's like, no matter what we say. And I'm, you wrote it and I'm, I'm actually shaking here. I'm actually shaking here. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, and I want to be really thoughtful about how that's phrased because there's, there's political versions of that, but it's really just that anything we say can easily be weaponized and made out of context and then used to create a hate mob, which then are, you know, so for each one of these things, we have to realize we're using these inhumane platforms that enable this distortion. And what we need is almost like we've been saying internally, and maybe we can co-create this with the whole community and with your help is what would be like a 10 commandments for living in a humane way on inhumane platforms, almost yeah. a nonviolent communication paradigm where we, before we jump in and try to get angry at that person, we can point to this like 10 commandments type thing, which I don't mean that in the sense of there's this top down, those guys said we should live in these 10 ways, but we co-create some different way to come from love <laughs> um, yeah. because these platforms are not optimized for love. And if you come from love, as Daniel Schmackenberger says, the peaceful tribes get killed and eaten by the warlike tribes. So the kind of warlike you know, participation kills the, the love participation. What we need to do is create a strange attractor and complex systems theory around a new, more loving, more win-win participation uh, paradigm. And because the platforms aren't going to change fast enough, we really need that urgently. And I think that's something that is an active uh, project that we should take on. You know, if it, it, I would... I would love it. I, I'm going to send you ours. I'd love you to. I'd love you to have a look because we have a version of what I think you're describing. I also just wanted to add a comment, which is, um, you know, there is a version of this, which is the things that we do live, and you know, we sort of, for us, we live in like a TED Aspen Institute realm, right? And ours is definitely different. And evidence would suggest that when people come, it's this really powerful experience. Now, I think they're drawn by the TED Aspen thing. I think they arrive and find this other thing and they feel life changed. I have a huge degree of confidence that the things we were just discussing are incredibly fulfilling and incredibly valued by the people who actually experience them. So getting people across a bridge, I think, is a, is a really important next step. And it's kind of how we sort of think about these things all day. And that relates to this question, which is try to give us like the best answer as to why you do this. Like, why do you do this on a very core level? Why do you, why do you get up and do this every day? But me personally, yeah. you're saying? Um, it's just because once you see it, you, 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 you just know we have to fix this. I mean, it's, it's very simple. Um, I, you know, as, as in the film they, they, they show and talk about, I started working on this in 2013 because I saw that in a race to the bottom uh, game theoretic dynamic for attention, you are going to end up with these problems and they're only going to get worse. And the slow accrual of those harms is going to be catastrophic if you don't fix it. So I, I'm actually frustrated that we haven't been able to make more progress in the last, you know, seven, eight years. Um, but I, yeah, I, I will say that what gives me hope, um, you know, pre-coronavirus, we would have never been able to take a documentary film. We, we originally, when we were talking about the film release, it was going to be in theaters and it was going to be people paying 11 bucks and going to a physical theater with five friends. And then we were going to try to have people, you know, go have dinner at a restaurant afterwards and talk about it in a human way. And, you know, if you think about how many people would have shown up to that physical theater, paid those physical $11 and actually had that conversation, it would have been a small number. 
Um, everyone's busy, the world's messy, etc. With this film launching on Netflix, where Netflix has gotten a 20% boost in subscribers since the start of coronavirus, and with everyone being in stay-at-home quarantine, and the fact that this film was released simultaneously in 190 countries and in 30 languages, I've never been more hopeful seeing the global response from Chile, from Argentina, from India. We were number one film in India recently. We were number one in Canada. We we're number two top movie in the United States in Netflix, on Netflix, which I think is creating a global, it literally felt like watching a consciousness tsunami just sort of sweep over the world um, and people waking up to what was happening. So that, that gives me um, you know, some, some hope about what can happen. And I, I also wanted just to mention one other thing since one thing, um, RP, especially from our past conversations that I appreciate about zooming out and getting people to see the kind of uh, civilization level takeover of like AI over the human race is these things are also identifying larger meta patterns about, that, about us that we may not see about ourselves as a collective. And I'll give you one concrete example. Let's say YouTube finds out that the, that the videos with the title, the media is lying. If you zoom out over an entire population of 3 billion people in every language, there's this like hyper object of this phrase called the media's lying, where if you give people that as a kind of built into the patterns of things that you're showing to lots of people, people watch less TV over time and they watch more YouTube over time. So in other words, it doesn't consciously know what would get people to watch more YouTube and to watch less TV. It just identifies as this super high level pattern that if you dose people with it over the course of a year long period, it starts to suck more people into YouTube and away from these other things. And I think there's many of these super high level patterns that it is identifying that you know, cause us to come back to these platforms and be more outraged and do even things that are violent that we don't even know what it's doing because it has so exceeded our intelligence. Um, and I think that's an important last point that I want people to also get because we don't even understand, as they say in the film, kind of what these systems are doing and what's governing them. And so the best we can do is understand their incentives. Like the best way to get an algorithm to explain itself is to understand what it's optimizing for at a higher level. And if it's optimizing for this engagement, it's definitely not aligned with human values. And that's what we have to do is to realign the incentives of these platforms with the public good. That, so I have a bunch of thoughts and they're not all optimistic. You know, one very quickly is fantastic movie, won an Oscar, The Inconvenient Truth. I'm sure a lot of people are comparing this to that for the environmental movement. We're still, what, we're 15, 20 years past that movie and we're not fixing things. So it's going to require, your movies, I cannot believe how great it was. And I'm so excited to hear about how, how large your audience is. It's going to require very dedicated effort from a lot of people for a long time to get against the massive commercial enterprises that are aligned against the core of humanity here. So I'm so glad you're doing that. Um, on Cassin on on uh, Corona, um, I think it was Larry Wright wrote an article which is similar to what you're saying about how the pandemic gives us the opportunity to x-ray our society. It gives us a chance to sit down and really understand what's right, what's wrong with us in a way that, you know, we maybe wouldn't have in a hurry along world uh, about our racial imbalances, our, our, our labor versus capital imbalances, et cetera. So I, I think that's, it's a particular moment. There's a lot of interesting um, societal benefit from the horror of this pandemic, which is fascinating. So let me, let me, reckoning, yeah. Yeah. Um, let me ask a small question and then a bigger question. The the big sister in the movie. Did you name her? Oh, Cassandra. Yeah. Uh, no, and it's important for people to know. Um, you know, I'm 
I guess you could say the primary subject in the film, but a subject I, I didn't, you know, choose the story or the narrative, the filmmakers, you know, kind of built all that. It's very influenced by our work, but uh, yeah, they, they chose the name Cassandra and the, the, in the family. And she's, she plays the role of um, saying there's, there's a real problem here. And Ben, who's the character, who's the getting manipulated by the YouTube rabbit holes and then shows up at a, at a protest um, is meant to be, you know, the one who thinks that there's no problem. You know, there is no manipulation going on. These things are fine. That's just alarmism. And we should just keep doing what we're doing. I thought it was artful how there were so many creative elements brought into the film, including that whole fictional scripted aspect to it. But I love that she was called Cassandra, of course, which resonates with our book about Cassandra. So, so that was awesome. So thank you to the filmmakers for bringing that story home. And my final question, and this is going to be a long interview, but um, I know everyone's going to love it. And, and my friend Jawad asked me to ask this to you, and I, th- I thought it was a great one. What in this process of revelation um, about the social media manipulation, when you wrote the manifesto at Google or in building the firm, the film, Tristan, what have you learned about yourself in this process? Um, I mean, to be honest, it's really hard as I think, I think the other reason I relate to the national security community is when you stare at these dystopian scenarios every single day, um, it's hard for my mental health. You know, yeah. I think it's, it's, uh, you're in your you own know, Filipino pain farm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because in a certain sense, you have a virtual reality in your own mind where instead of seeing newsfeed stories of self-harm, you're, you're, I know about, you know, so many of the dark corners of this, from the national security geopolitical warfare sides to the conspiracy sides to the mental health uh, sides. And, and then I also get, you know, um, emails from people who, uh, you know, are suffering from, from these things. We've gotten so many emails from people who've lost a child to, you know, suicide from some of these things. Uh, so I see, I see a lot of the dark aspects and I think um, that the heart, I kind of wish I, I, I think it was someone telling me how like the, the joint chiefs of staff have these psychotherapists that have to deal with how, how do you hold all that? Um, and, and I kind of relate to and wish I had more of the training that people who are in those fields have, because I think that now in this case, um, civilians have to hold a lot more of the really inconvenient truths across our society. And that, you know, I, I just wonder how kids are dealing with all of these things now. So that's, that's mostly what I've learned about myself. And I would say that I'm, I'm holding a more grounded um, place to stand from uh, now by also recognizing that you have to live your life while you're uh, working on these things and, and find uh, gratitude in the simple things. I mean, it was uh, the day that our film came out, we, we joked that we took out a full page ad in the sky for the apocalypse because it was that day in San Francisco when it was all yellow and red. Um, <laughs> and uh, since our film is kind of about a digital apocalyptic view of reality, we took out the largest full page ad that you could take out. <laughs> It, it's it's hard when there's this many things weighing down on the psyche. Um, but I, again, I, I think that, you know, as many people point out, the, the root of the world word apocalypse is the, re, the word reveal for things to reveal themselves. And I think that what we're simply doing, as you said, with coronavirus is we're shining an x-ray light on the fragility that we've had in society for a long time due to some of the extractive uh, game theoretic issues that we've had in our society for a while. So awareness precedes choice. And I hope that the collective awareness that we have with this is going to create some choice that we haven't seen before. Well, we also get to reveal some heroes and some people doing great things like you uh, and some of the, a lot of the work that Tom does at TMP. And that's a special thing as well. And if we didn't have you and those great things, the two of you, 
uh, then I'd be in a deep pit of despair, but I'm not because of both of you. So thank you. Thank you, RP. You know, I'm going to also, if you haven't seen it, you've, it, by the way, Tristan, I've been saying this day after day, like you got to see this movie, you got to see this Literally. Movie. Yeah. Um, if you haven't, please see it. And the only other thing I would ask is that don't leave it for Tristan to solve it. This is like a generational thing. And I think we all have to put our energies into, I mean, just, it's literally like ask your children not to pick them up on Sundays. Like just start somewhere and keep moving and believe that there's another side to this and we've got to solve it. That's right. And I'm so glad and I really appreciate this conversation with both of you, but Tom, I'm so glad that's what you just said too, because I think one thing that people can do when you, when you watch the film, maybe I, I don't know if I said this earlier, um, is uh, when you realize that even if you do the right thing, the rest of the world is still living by these platforms. As we say, you know, um, the, the Rohingya in, my, in Myanmar, uh, the Rohingya minority that was murdered um, due to fake news spread on Facebook, they didn't have to be on Facebook to be the victims of that problem. And the kids that um, get bullied because of things that are said on social media, they don't have to be on social media to get bullied by it. Um, and so this affects everyone, which I think, again, puts all of us in the same boat when we can see that we all have to solve it together. And it's going to take way more people than, than a handful of, of, of uh, you know, of activists. I'm, I'm my biggest hope is that this draws a lot of people in. And one of the biggest actions people can take is actually to host a screening um, with people who typically wouldn't see it. Like think of people who maybe don't have Netflix or who are in different parts of the country who, you know, really live or addicted by Facebook or something like that. And when you watch the film and host a screening and you do um, either virtually or in person with your pod or something, actually open up, whether it's use Facebook or use Instagram or, or Twitter, open up the app that you use the most that someone else uses and then do a reality swap like Freaky Friday, like step into, actually scroll through their feed and see what their reality is like. Because I think when people viscerally get a taste of, oh my gosh, I understand why you believe and think the things you're thinking and believing, because now I can literally see the kinds of articles that you're being fed. Like for me, if you looked at my feed, you'd see, you know, climate, urgent climate timelines and escalating US-China relations. And you might say, oh my God, I understand why Tristan looks like he's, you know, terrified most of the time. Um, I, I think this gives us a lot more empathy if you do that kind of reality swap host the conversation, you can turn off notifications, you can take a digital Sabbath. If everybody took one day off social media a week, that would be 15% of the revenue of these tech companies. Um, there's actually some really concrete things people can do. And if people want to you know, learn more, they can go uh, on our website as well, uh, humanetech.com uh, or check out our podcast, which goes deeper into these issues. In fact, we actually interviewed many of the guests on in the film, many of the interview guests uh, on our podcast as well to go deeper into attention, Russian disinformation, what happened in the Philippines, um, with Maria Ressa. So there's a, there's a lot more for people to dig into. It's a lot here. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. And I, I hope people dive in. So thank you. I we really appreciate you were generous with your time today. I know you're in a busy time in your life. So thanks for being here. I, I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation with you both. I mean, we really got to go deep into the issues. It's, uh, I really just hope people um, watch it and, and watch this conversation specifically. I think there's a, a lot of really good stuff that we've, we've uh, gone, gotten to cover. I'd love to send you what we do and just comment it in any way you feel like. I, I think your input would be invaluable and we've worked hard on it. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, and if people are interested, I really would love to see different attempts at what would be a humane protocol, almost like a nonviolent communication protocol for participating in an inhumane um, infrastructure that we're currently living inside of um, because it's not going to change immediately. So how can we live differently and from love, as you said, uh, while we're using it? 
I'd love to see that too, but I'd love to see some way to get um, a little more, make it less, I'd like us to be less asymmetric in the power imbalance in that instance, right? I'd like to figure out how, how we can accelerate that into something against these trillion dollar corporations uh, and these nation states that are using it against us. And I don't, I'm not optimistic on how that happens, but I'd love to see you guys figure it out. <laughs> one, one thing, RP, really specifically is we're actually talking about if um, a group creates a profile frame. I don't know if you saw when, when quarantine happened, um, people started putting these, these pink uh, or sort of red um, circles around their profile that said, stay home, save lives. Oh yeah, sure. And, and so, you know, that can spread virally throughout Facebook. And one of our hopes, and actually at all the platforms, and there's a team that built those and we're talking to them now about, hey, if we actually had a humane protocol for living in an inhumane uh, world, you know, a bunch of people after seeing the film are going to delete their accounts. There's like a sugar documentary. 5% of people are going to stop eating sugar, but the 95% are going to do it. They're just going to do it a lot more consciously. But how do those of us who are, who are part of this movement mark ourselves and identify ourselves as we are going to live in this in a different way? So when we say this humane protocol, it wouldn't work by itself. It's I would have to sort of read these 10 things and say, yep, I'm willing to do that. I'm going to stamp my, you know, some badge on my profile somehow. And I'm marking myself that way. If I get into a flame war, someone can say, you know, on a comment thread on, on a future post, we can all reference that humane protocol and say, hey, you've got this badge or hey, do you want to join this humane way? First watch the film. Then there's these 10 things that we can do to live differently. That creates a viral mechanism that can correct for the asymmetry that we're talking about. Tom, it reminds me a bit of neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. We have an outline of, of that kind of thing. That's why I'd love you to see some of this stuff. It's exactly, exactly. I mean, one of the things we have just as an example, and Netflix is never going to go for this, but we, our platform is built around a screen and humans and you watch together and you talk together and you watch together and you talk together and to watch your film and have those conversations, it, it would be awesome. Awesome. Here's the thing I'll tell you. So we have all these episodes and you start in episode one, it's like a video book club. Episode one is about acceptance. It's a very emotional story. Um, every time the first thing everyone talks about phones, they, they get right to this raw place. And in that raw place, they lament their relationships with their phones. You know, you would think the first thing they would talk about is that, you know, the, their, their death of their brother or their daughter is cutting. They start with phones. It's a, it's a powerful thing. Anyway. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you. Uh, I just want to say this was a really great conversation. I really hope we can spread this far and wide. I think it was uh, a lot of detail for people to get into and, and navigate the kind of counter objections and, and, and all that. So I'd love to know how we can spread it. Great. 